I think the big question for the Biden administration will be, what is that balance between foreign policy and the development of strategic investments going to look like? It is the week of February 15th, and welcome to episode 66 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI Senior Fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Morgan Vigna, former Chief of Staff to Ambassador Nikki Haley, and her role as Permanent Representative to the United Nations. Morgan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, the Biden administration's a month old. A bunch of people have already made judgments. Some of them are a little bit unfair. They've had, uh, you know, just 30 days in office. They're facing uh, plenty of challenges, the president and his national security team. A once in a lifetime pandemic, rising competition with China, Russia challenging us kind of across the board, lingering wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, not to mention horrible civil wars and humanitarian crises in places like Yemen and Syria. One of the things we haven't seen discussed much in the news is sub-Saharan Africa. So thanks for being with us. Can you set the table for us by talking about where we've been the last four years on U.S. policy towards Africa and kind of some of the challenges that President Biden is facing on the continent? Sure. So I think when you look at President Trump's record in in sub-Saharan Africa, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, The administration put out several strategies on the continent, but none of them really seemed to integrate together to form a, a cohesive approach. Um, and unfortunately, I think what you'll see in the Trump administration has happened in a lot of other presidential administrations, and that is Africa is often overshadowed by priorities in the Middle East and the Indo-Pacific. Um, I'll note, though, that Bush 43 was um, an exception to this, just given the, the prioritization of PEPFAR and you know, the president's malaria initiative. Um, but with that said, though, Trump had a lot of gaffes that actually undermined some pretty solid uh, work that was being done. Um, I think you'll recall at a UN high-level week meeting in 2017 with African heads of state, um, Trump mispronounced Namibia. Now, while kind of silly, you know, and he was trolled on social media and a tourism company even, you know, made an ad poking fun at this gaffe. Um, it wasn't so funny in 2018 during an immigration meeting with a bipartisan group of senators that Trump referred to Haiti and African countries as, you know, quote, shithole countries, right? So clearly that was did not endear him to, to the continent. Um, you know, there were high points, though, um, that Biden will inherit. Um, and these were specifically in international development, you know, including Prosper Africa, you know, the standing up of the Development Finance Corporation and the renewal of the Global Food Security Act. So I'll also note, and I have to give credit to my, you know, my former boss, Ambassador Haley. Um, she gave a lot of attention to Africa. You know, she put Salva Kiir and Joseph Kabila, you know, on blast um, for their, you know, human rights abuses and autocratic tendencies. Uh, she traveled to both countries and really held them to account. Um, she also made massive progress on the peacekeeping front. You know, there are more peacekeeping missions in Africa than anywhere else in the world. And, you know, the missions um, in Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire were closed during um, her term, um, Unimid, the hybrid peacekeeping mission in Darfur, was dramatically scaled down and is actually on its way to closing. Um, and frankly, she also did a lot of really great work to rein in the budgets of these um, missions that tended to be a little unwieldy. So um, I think we'll also see that, and we'll discuss later, that you know, significant progress was made with respect to Sudan, you know, moving closer to normalizing that relationship by removing SST designation. Um, so there, there were definitely were some high points 
of the Trump administration. Unfortunately, I think you'll find with the defense and security relationship, that was really strained. Um, Trump's defense department really did not do enough at the beginning to build relationships with you know, African counterparts. Um, there was a lot of speculation about the United States repositioning its troop footprint in Africa. And there was also a lot of consternation by Congress and our international partners, particularly France, um, with respect to the Sahel, about how this would all go down. Um, I think this all climaxed in the remaining weeks of the Trump administration when the United States removed troops from Somalia. Um, many, in- including myself, um, believe that this was a wrong decision because it really did open up a vacuum for Al-Shabaab and other malign actors to, to, to operate. Um, so that, that sort of, that's it in a nutshell. You mentioned a bunch of foreign policy, foreign assistance programs that the Trump administration was involved in, Prosper Africa, development, uh, the Development Finance Corporation and its creation, which, which was Congress and, and the administration working together. Great stuff. What's, what's your assessment after having been in the administration for a few years at the UN at, and at DOD? What's the overall state of our foreign policy toolbox? Does, does the Biden administration have the things that they need to get the job done in a place like Sub-Saharan Africa? So I think, you know, I'm actually going to turn back to sort of the international development sphere here, because I I truly think that when we look at the advances that we've made in international development with respect to Africa, that's, those those are definitely the high points. Um, I'll start with the DFC. And that is, um, you know, the DFC was definitely the most notable of the advancements in this space. Um, It's created by the Build Act, um, which, you know, our former boss, Senator Porker, uh, championed. And DFC really did double down on America's investment in developing countries. Um, And more specifically, it had an explicit mandate to align work with U.S. foreign policy priorities. Um, You know, Adam Bowler, in particular, the CEO of the DFC, was was adamant about this, that, you know, the DFC could not be all things to to all people. Um, And so there was an effort to really prioritize its work based on U.S. foreign policy priorities. Um, And I think if you look at sort of how the the DFC is organized and specifically how the board is set up, it reflects this. Um, the Secretary of State is the head of the board. You know, the Administrator of USAID um, and, and the Secretary of Commerce are both on the board, but you have Sex State at the head. Um, one of the primary successes of the DFC was that it really created a new way of scoring project impact. Um, and I think to identify, qualify, and quantify the impact of investments was a major institutional change with respect to how the United States does international development. I think the big question for the Biden administration will be, you know, what is that balance between foreign policy and the development of strategic investments going to look like? Um, you know, it's expected that the Biden administration you know, might move more to, towards the development side. Um, there might be other foreign policy interests such as, you know, clean energy. Um, I, you know, if, and I, if I'm John Kerry, I'm sort of like looking at you know, the DFC with dollar signs. So I think we could see a shift in sort of the prioritization of investments moving forward. Are you worried that the emphasis on clean energy programs could negatively impact development on the continent? So I think a lot of work has been done to um, further great power competition, particularly with Russia in this space. And Russia, I mean, doesn't deal with clean energy, right? And so I think if we're going to counter Russia, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
So if we have an energy project that doesn't is not necessarily green and it's countering Russia, we shouldn't end that program or end that investment just because it doesn't deal with clean energy. It's furthering U.S. advancements in foreign policy and countering a malign actor in the region. And that's something that we should definitely push forward with. So stepping back a little bit, what are uh, some of the things that the Trump administration didn't do in Africa that it should have done? Sure. Well, there were definitely missed opportunities. Um, you know, I think the Pentagon, I think that leaders should have been much more invested in building relationships with their counterparts. You know, the, the national defense strategy, you know, championed by, you know, Secretary Mattis, um, really prioritized, you know, partnerships and alliances. And I think we sort of saw that slip away when it comes to Africa. You know, the only time that, you know, leadership really spoke with African partners was to deliver bad news, you know, as was the case with, you know, the withdrawal of Somalia. Um, and that was literally in the last weeks of the administration. So um, I think you'll also see that, you know, Esper waited until October to travel to the continent for the first time. Um, so with that said, defense relationships and security relationships really need to sort of take um, a, a different approach here. Um on the on the trade and investment side, I really have to give credit to uh, Ramsey and Ramsey Day and Dan Rundy over at CSIS for this idea because I think it's brilliant. Um, and I didn't come up with it, but <laughs> the administration could have hosted a U.S. Africa Business Summit um, with POTUS participation. Um, this would have been something you know similar to what you know, President Obama did with the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit. Um, I think it would have really showcased uh, the excellent work that the U.S. is doing, particularly on DFC, Prosper Africa, and other development initiatives. And um, it would have needed to sort of been planned much earlier on in the administration. Um, but I think, nevertheless, it, it was a missed opportunity, never, never took form. What's your assessment of how well the U.S. is meeting the the challenge of China in sub-Saharan Africa? And I'm thinking of the Belt and Road Initiative, this multi-billion dollar, multi-year effort by China to uh, insinuate its interests and and values, perhaps, in developing countries. Uh, some African countries seem particularly vulnerable to that. What's your what's your take on whether we're doing the right things to to prevent bad things from happening in that regard? Sure. So the short answer is no, we are not meeting the challenge in Africa right now, but we're taking steps in the right direction. Um, look, China's rise to influence in Africa didn't start yesterday. You know, China began very meaningful engagement on the continent back in the 60s, you know, when it pitted itself against imperialism and, you know, white rule. Um, China was also pretty strategic with how it used the UN General Assembly um, for international recognition and its competition with Taipei. So China's been investing in the continent and in building those relationships for a long time. Now, you fast forward a few decades and we see a dramatic surge in Chinese investment in the continent. You know, China starts building infrastructure in Africa. We see China building the Ghanaian Ministry of Defense, the African Union headquarters, um, really making progress to flood the, the continent with its money and its people. Um, China has also, you know, ramped up predatory lending, you know, doling out a lot of cash to African leaders and their governments, um, which, you know, is frankly, you know, uncertain if a lot of these governments will ever be able to, to pay it back. Um, but I think getting to the Belt Road Initiative, you know, when we saw uh, she's unveiling of this in 2013, um, that 
it exploded, right? I think everything became much more apparent of where China was going um, in investing in the continent to provide for its own domestic interests. Um, and I think a particular concern for the United States is you know, sort of the ease with which um, Huawei and ZTE, you know, China's state-owned internet companies, uh, have which are infamous for their surveillance technology, um, really have become the main internet providers in Africa. 35 countries in Africa have partnerships with Huawei and ZTE. Um, this is highly concerning for a number of reasons, but I think moving forward um, to get to sort of the second part of your question, you know, what should the United States do about it? Um, and frankly, the United States should not and will not, in my opinion, do business like China does. Um, African countries, they want to do business with the United States, but we just haven't really created the mechanisms until recently, um, like Prosper Africa, where we've been able to become more innovative and um, more innovative in our development approach. Um, so also, frankly, getting back to the DFC, um, I think there's also a tremendous opportunity um, to really begin the hard work of tapping into markets um, that we haven't really explored before, including you know, creating new ones. Um, I think we need to partner as opposed to compete with other you know, development finance institutions. Um, Japan is a really great partner, um, and I think or we've seen progress there. But really tap into um, leveraging financing in a way that we haven't done before. And I, as I said, we're off to a good start, but you know, China's you know years ahead of us in this respect. So Morgan, we haven't seen any big personnel announcements from the administration for the, for the various top jobs dealing with Africa. Of course, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, our new perm rep at the UN, uh, has uh, extensive experience in Africa. But what are your expectations for the Biden administration about some of these personnel matters and prioritization of, of Africa and his administration? Sure. So Biden's already taken a lot of, you know, admirable steps with regards to the continent. Um, you know, on his first day in office, you know, Biden appealed the Trump administration's ban on travelers from Muslim-majority African countries, you know, Somalia, Libya, Eritrea, others. Um, that, I think, was an easy win for him. Um, I also think it's notable that, you know, earlier this month, uh, President Biden actually delivered marks, remarks at the African Union Summit. Um, so in addition to sort of all that kumbaya language within his remarks, you know, the effort on partnership, solidarity, mutual respect, I think he also highlighted an important need for increased trade and investment. Um, and this was specifically, I think, a very important signal to China. Um, and I think it's also interesting that you had Musafaki, who's the AU chairperson, actually tweet out, you know, he's looking forward to sort of resetting the relationship with the United States. So with that said, and whether it was a knock on the Trump administration or not, I think we're, we're seeing, you know, positive signaling, positive messaging here that could um, move the, the U.S. relationship with, with African countries in, in a good direction. With that said, that while we are getting sort of the warm and fuzzies from Biden um, on Africa, it's the real question is, like, what is he actually going to do about China? And um, I think one mistake that too many U.S. leaders make when messaging to, to African leaders is, you know, China bad, America good. And there's not ever really an alternative for how the United States should provide and what solution the United States should provide. So I think the, the challenge for the Biden administration will be to actually, you know, deliver on this. 
like nice rhetoric is, you know, all well and good, but what's the actual deliverable here? Um, and I, I think the, a good start would be actually, you know, highlighting to African countries, you know, why embracing the United States is a good thing. I mean, look at our value system, right? Um, we also need to sort of make the argument and, and make a case for why it is profitable for African countries to work with us. So let's talk about a couple of uh, specific examples on the continent. One uh, bad news, one maybe good news. Bad news, uh, there's, a, there's a civil war percolating in Ethiopia. Uh, this brings back, for those of us of a certain age, Morgan, this brings back uh, memories of uh, the 1970s and 80s, a lot of humanitarian strife, um, uh, bad things happening. How, how worried should we be about the situation in Ethiopia right now? So I think we've you know surpassed the question of whether or not you know we're dealing with a humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, the answer is yes. Like we've been dealing with a humanitarian catastrophe in Ethiopia for months. And I think the the backstory to this, Wes. Um, so when Abi came into office, he really sort of upset the power balance in, in Ethiopia, um, specifically with the. Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, um, which was the leading party in Ethiopia for for decades. Um, And the TPLF really, I feel, felt threatened by this and in September held regional elections in defiance of a federal order to postpone them because of COVID. Um, And then, you know, fast forward a few months, everything went to hell in November when uh, the TPLF attacked federal forces in Tigray. Um, since then, we've we've seen this relentless barrage of airstrikes, uh, targeted attacks on uh, the Tigrayan people, not only by Ethiopian defense forces, but also by the Eritreans. Um, we've got nearly three million people in need of assistance. Um, there's there's an information blackout. We can't really get a lot of really solid data on the ground um, or, or visuals about what this how bad the situation really is. Um, and so we're, we're in a pretty, we're in a pretty awful situation there. Um, but I think to sort of dig down further is like, what do we do about this? What does the state department do about this? And, um, the state department really needs to have a come to Jesus moment with, with Abby. Um, I think there was a sense of relief when he initially came into office. Um, there was this thought that he was going to be a major reformer, um, and really advance Ethiopia's leadership in the, in the region and with the United States. Of course, he came to that historic agreement with Eritrea that resolved some issues that have been lingering for decades. So there was a decent reason to think he was a breath of fresh air. Right. There's a ton of optimism. But I think we're in a much different situation right now. Um, and I think the sooner the State Department really sort of wakes up to this, you know, the better. Um, I also think there's an opportunity, actually, for for Secretary Austin. I think he should definitely make the effort and call his Ethiopian counterpart um, and, and have a difficult discussion with him that, look, the actions taken by the EDF are unacceptable um, and it jeopardizes not only the U.S.-Ethiopia relationship, but also security in the neighborhood where, frankly, we have U.S. forces. So, um, look, the Ethiopian military is one of the most professional militaries on the continent. And I I think, you know, there is a lot of um, opportunity for the United States and Ethiopia to to work together. But um, as long as these atrocities continue, um, it's going to be a rocky road ahead. 
Let's talk about some good news. Sudan is uh, purging Islamists from the government. The U.S. is taking it off the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Good things are happening on the ground. It appears we have a government we can really uh, do some good work with. What's the potential benefits here of a Sudan more integrated into the international community? When uh, Omar al-Bashir, the former president, was deposed in 2019, um, I think we saw a real opportunity for Sudan to take a turn in the right direction. Um, So far, we are seeing some progress, as you you note, Um, although, you know, the economy is still in really rough shape, which is also the same reason why Bashir was, you know, originally ousted, right? So, you know, there there is cautious opportunity for, for optimism. You know, and there was a desire for both the Obama and the Trump administrations to see a resolution to the SST designation, um, as well as nor- leading to the normalization of relations. Um, but tr- Trump got the, got the job done, right? And he gets all the credit for getting this across the finish line. Um, and to... Agreed to the designation, though, and he he got Sudan to agree to pay out 335 million to families of the victims of you know the terrorist bombings um, in Ethiopia, not excuse me, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and um, in Kenya um, in 1998, and then the USS Cole bombing um, in 2000. So, so it's not like we. Sudan, you know, got this for free, right? Um, additionally, um, Trump also got Sudan to sign on to the Abraham Accords, normalizing re- relationship with Israel. So we've seen a lot of progress. However, <laughs> with that said, though, um, you know, Su- the Sudanese government talks a big game. They talk a good game. You know, I I met with Prime Minister Hamduk, you know, at the Pentagon, and he said all the right things, but. In reality, though, I know Sudan's balance of power is really shared between the military and the civilian government, and everything is weighted in favor of the military, um, which is a seriously flawed institution in need of reform. So while I think there's reason to be hopeful here, um, I would advise the Biden administration to have a contingency plan should all of this go south. All right, let's pull back a little bit and uh, talk about economic issues. Before coronavirus, Sub-Saharan Africa was one of the fastest growing, was was home to a lot of the most fast growing economies in the world. Maybe not every single country, but a good number of them. And broadly speaking, probably the hottest uh, region in the world in terms of economic growth. What's your What's your assessment of how coronavirus is going to impact African economic growth? And can we get back to a place where, uh, you know, it's Africa is growing as rapidly as it was before the pandemic? Sure. So back in 2012, I think we saw, you know, African economic growth hit about 7%. North African growth, I think, hit about 10%. Like it was, things were, were going in the right direction. But I think that we've actually seen, you know, that progress trail off in recent years. Um, you know, my crystal ball has been wrong before, um, but in, in, in this case, I, I hope it is. But I, I really don't see African economies bouncing back or, or skyrocketing any anytime soon. Um, I think sustainable economic growth will ultimately depend on the economic freedom and openness of governments' abilities to capture inclusive growth by addressing uh, inequality and reducing poverty. Um, but unfortunately, in recent years, we've seen African economies become less free. Last year, um, the, the 2020 uh, Index of Economic Freedom um, put out by the Heritage Foundation um, noted that the only country in Africa 
to actually be considered economically free was Mauritius. Now, good governance and rule of law principles such as property rights and counter-corruption are, are really going to be uh, critical to, to the viability of African countries for, for the long term. When we bring China into this, African countries taking on more debt from China um, will ultimately result in unequal business relationship with Beijing and you know, at the highest potential really undermine a lot of African countries' sovereignty um, at, at sort of worst case scenario. Um, so I think reducing dependence on Chinese money will ultimately um, be a factor in, in uh, economic growth for the continent. I think the good news, though, is that the United States can help with this, right? So by using development initiatives such as the DFC and Prosper Africa, um, I believe that we can slowly start to catch up to China um, and improve our business relationship on the continent. So let's turn to the Middle East. Uh, you wrote an article in, uh, I think it was The Hill, about uh, competition with China in the Middle East. Tell us about the article. Sure. So thanks for thanks for giving, giving it a plug. Um, the op-ed featured, was featured in The Hill, um, and it draws attention to the fact that under the Trump administration, we saw a sharp focus on countering China in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, similarly, under the Obama administration, we saw you know, the pivot to Asia. Um, while the Indo-Pacific is, you know, of course, an important part of the world for competing with China, China's everywhere. They're not just, they don't just sit in their own neighborhood. Um, Beijing has influence across the globe and throughout international organizations. And likewise, the United States, you know, should take a global approach to counter this. Um, so it specifically drills down on the Middle East um, to really bring attention to a region of the world where the United States has so many defense and security equities. Okay. Last question goes to Grant Haver. Great. Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to, to sit down with us. Biden's foreign policy is supposed to be driven by the idea of a, a foreign policy for the middle class. How does engagement with Africa really impact the middle class in the United States? Good question. So I think the African diaspora community is massive in the United States. It has a significant amount of influence. You know, uh, those that can vote, vote. Um, and, and frankly, as we saw, we had, you know, a massive amount of support from the diaspora community for President Trump. Um, and so I think when Biden talks about, you know, helping the middle class and really driving policies that, that benefit, um, working Americans, um, he has to take into consideration, you know, the African diaspora community. Um, it is not insignificant and, and they vote. Morgan, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.